Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send in the Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who was selected ninth overall in the 1968 Common Draft by the AFL's Buffalo Bills. He played college football at Los Angeles Harbor College and San Diego State University. During the 1972 season, he was traded to the Denver Broncos for wide receiver Dwight Harrison. He made the AFL All-Star Game in 1969 and the NFL Pro Bowl in 1973. He is on the Ring of Fame in Sports Authority Field at Mile High and was a 1986 inductee to the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who holds two of the Denver Broncos franchise records for yards per reception for a career 18.05 and receiving touchdowns in a playoff game two in 1978 versus Oakland. Number 25 in your program, Haven Moses to WLIE 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Haven. Thank you so much, guys. That was a wonderful introduction. It, well, it's all you, so you know, yeah. <laughs> we didn't do it. You did. So uh, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, this past week, former Denver Broncos head coach Robert Red Miller passed away at the age of 89 Thanks. years old. He was your head coach for four of your 10 years as a Bronco. What were your first impressions of him in training camp in 1977? He actually took over for John Ralston, who had just had a run of three winning seasons out of the last four, including a 9-5 and mark in 1976. Right, right. You know, it's it's really difficult. You think back on that time, and obviously uh, we overcame what was, I thought, would have been a disaster uh, to any team when you have a changing of staff like that and the way it had happened. Um, But uh, having said that, uh, Red came in with the the, the enthusiasm uh, and kind of put that sour note behind all of us. And we all focused on it. I think that's when we really knew how good of a team we had when we just uh, went out and uh, beyond what was happening and, and performed the way we did and, and came up with that championship year. The interesting thing is that he's best known as a coach who led a team led by linebackers Randy Gratishar, uh, Bob Swenson, Tom Jackson, cornerbacks Lewis Wright and Bernard Jackson, safeties Bill Thompson, defensive and Lyle Alzado into right. the Orange Crush defense. Yet the 77 Broncos scored 21 or more points in more than half of their games. Do you think the offense of that team is somewhat underrated? Well, you know, certainly being a part of that, we had Riley Odoms, Rick Upchurch, Jack Dalvin, Otis Armstrong, Lonnie Perrin, John Keyword. We had a very good offense, but the focus was on Joe Collier's Orange Crush defense, and they were just so dynamic uh, during the early, well, even even the years before when uh, Joe was starting to put that team together with the draft picks that he was making. Uh, many of them were third, fourth, is Tom Jackson, fifth-round picks. So I think... What the city and the league got caught up in was a very emotional effort by a defense, as we saw two years ago with Super Bowl 50 with our defense with Von Miller. But as an offense, I remember, and we used to laugh about it, the coaches would come in when we were putting our game plan together and just would tell us, okay, now, we got a defensive game plan. You guys don't mess up. <laughs> well, you know, there was a difference. A new coach came to town in terms of Red Mill and a new quarterback, Craig Morton. So how right. different was the offense, and how much was the transition, you know, catching balls thrown by a new quarterback? 
it wasn't that much of, I think um, it infused because we, even though we had a solid offense and, and primarily a running game, uh, we didn't, we did we weren't very ver, uh, vertical uh, at that time. And having an arm, uh, you know, having Craig come in with the arm that he did have, just kind of gave us another dimension. And he was able to stretch us as players on offense a lot more. We used, utilized the talents of our tight end, Riley Odoms, which was, you know, he's probably the most underrated to, to, to play the pro game. Uh, then we had Speasters, Jack Dobbin, and Rick, Rick Upchurch on the opposite side. And obviously I played, uh, uh, you know, the flanker side. So we were able to stretch the field and really put opponents' defenses uh, in, in predicaments that they really didn't expect from us uh, to be that dynamic. Now, you had one of your greatest games of your career in the 1977 AFC Championship game, a 20-17 to win that propelled the Broncos into the Super Bowl. Craig Morton threw two touchdown passes to you. The first score of the game was on a 74-yard play down the sidelines. The second came on a 12-yard touchdown on a diving scoop catch for what turned out to be the deciding points. You finished that game with five receptions, 168 yards, 33.6 yards per catch in the championship game that forever changed the way the Broncos would be regarded in the NFL. You guys had split the two regular season meetings with the Raiders headed into that game. What was Coach Miller's message and the mindset uh, headed into that AFC Championship game against the Raiders? Well, it was, it was one that we knew that we had to beat them. I mean, we played uh, in the, uh, the previous week, we played the Pittsburgh Steelers, and then uh, we had home field advantage, which was first phenomenal for a first time ever team to to get that far unknown to anyone in the league and to have home field advantage throughout. Um, so it was one that we, we, we knew how we, we had to be focused. Uh, to, to be the best, we had to beat the best. And that season, I think we had probably the fifth toughest schedule in the, in the, in the league. Um, and then we played some of the best teams, the two teams uh, that I called, uh, uh, that I mentioned, the Raiders and the and the Steelers, they dominated the 70s when it came to championships and Super Bowls. So I think we had a built-in motivation. Uh, we, we, we've been, you know, uh, the Broncos had been looked over for so many years, laughed at for so many years. In 74, 75, we began to put this team together, and the players themselves began to realize that all of a sudden we had something special here for, the, for our community, number one, uh, but for, for the game of football. So what Red provided for us was that spark that continued to, to remind us uh, how important uh, these games were, but more importantly, what we were going to accomplish uh, in, in, in successfully uh, getting to that point. You know, it's interesting to note that not only are you a member of that first Broncos team to go to a Super Bowl, but four years prior to that, you're a member of the very first winning season that the Broncos have ever had. In that 73 season, the Broncos went 7-5-2. and two. You caught a career-high eight touchdown passes to earn Pro Bowl honors. Having been there for that season and to see the fan base get behind that Super Bowl team, you know, three years down the road, you know, four years down the road, had to be a very interesting experience for you. What were those years turning the 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 page and and becoming a winning franchise like for you well number one if you if you know denver's history or colorado i mean not until the past five ten years we we've entered into the ranks of a metropolitan city right now uh with the growth that's taking place but back in the 70s uh we were basically a cow town uh i don't know how many franchises uh fast food franchises we had but very few but the point is 
we began to build this momentum, and we were flying under the radar, so to speak, because being in Denver, the media was on the, either on the East Coast or West Coast, and uh, Denver still didn't get, we were not getting the respect. And again, that was part of the motivation, I think, within all of us, was that, uh, uh, that effort to bring respect not only to the Bronco organization, but the city of Denver. So it was, the momentum was building up with our fan base here. People were just getting excited. We always had strong support. I mean, it could be 30 below zero and a ton of snow, and we could be getting our butts kicked, and the stadium would be full until the final gun would go off. So we knew we had the support there, and it was just putting it all together, and I think it's one of those that the stars lined up as well as, I mean, it's, this was not an overnight, uh, you know, one-hit wonder overnight. We were building up to this, as you pointed out, the first winning season, 73-74 winning seasons, and then crescendoing into uh, ultimately a championship game. It was electric. It was exciting. The, the, the Old Mile High Stadium, um, it was, you know, it was not state-of-the-art, but, boy, I tell you what, the Raptors shook and the fans took pleasure in loosening the bolts and, and the beams and what have you, but it was the most exciting uh, uh, time that any athlete could ever have in a community. And Terry Bradshaw even mentioned it after we beat them in the first playoff game, that enjoy because it'll never feel like this again. We've subsequently won three Super Bowls, after that, but the feeling of the first one and me being around, you know, for the next three that we won, um, and I'm, you know, being somewhat biased, but <laughs> it just didn't have the same emotional ring to it because of it being the first time and so special. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned Craig Morton, but uh, the guy that really doesn't get a lot of credit, and you mentioned Riley Odom as being one of the most underrated players, there's a guy. Um, he was a quarterback in the Broncos' first winning season ever. You know how important was you know Charlie Johnson to changing the culture in Denver? You know he's one of those quarterbacks of the '70s that doesn't get enough credit. And the reason I ask is that when he retired in 1975, he retired with a 59 and 57 and 8 record as a starter. His 1737 completions at that time ranked 13th all time in professional football. The 24,410 yards was 14th all time. The 170 touchdowns was 15th. He had a passer rating of 69.7, which was 20th of all time. Yet if you ask 100 football fans in their 30s, I would say probably 95% would just look at you like who? You know, what was, you know, what was Charlie Johnson like as a quarterback for people who have never seen him play? Charlie was uh, a student of the game. He was very cerebral, uh, and he was uh, somewhat of a motivator. He knew how to motivate the players. He knew what to do, when to do it in terms of calling the plays uh, that would put the fire under an individual. He was, he, to me, uh, he was the, the person that uh, helped us start that winning process. He, he taught us how to win, how to become winners, and he showed with the confidence, meaning that, he, his talents had diminished tremendously. I remember when they taped him up before every game, they lifted him up, the linemen had to lift him up on the taping table, and they almost mummified him, just wrapping him up, uh, you know, to you know, kind of protect his body. So his skills had tremendously diminished, but his mind and the way he anticipated. And for me with Charlie, when I first came in 72, he was so patient, and he just brought me along to a point where – you know, he couldn't. He didn't have the arm, but he anticipated when I would make a break, the ball would be have been in the air. You know, just about halfway there. So he, he taught us all 
because of his professionalism, number one, we had a young team, so we 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 grabbed the whole of that and, and embraced Charlie, and he just he he just took us all under his wing and just guided us to 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 what we you know uh, felt was uh, the path to to the glory that we were you know finally achieved. You you talked about how the community supported the team. One of the things I think is unusual, at least in your case, maybe other teams, is you actually got involved in the community and actually stayed. You made Denver your home. You got very involved in the offseason, had a job. You know, people here today see players, the finish season, they go off, they do whatever in the offseason, go back, wherever. You stayed in Denver. You got involved in the community and basically made your life there. How important was it to be involved with the community? Well, I think it was, it was you know, something that I was, how I was raised, number one. But how this uh, community embraced me after being traded from Buffalo, you know, I mean, Joyce and I, we just, you know, we, we, we packed our car up from L.A. and drove all the way back to Buffalo our rookie year and didn't know what to expect uh, from the NFL because that, that was not what we were focused on in our lives. That's not what our parents uh, uh, laid the foundation uh, to us for, and that was to go into sports. It was to be better in life through education and through uh, involvement. And so that was that was that was something that was ingrained in me beforehand. But coming to Denver and the way this community embraced my family, and and, and obviously after after we had gone to and, and done what we accomplished, uh, the fans, uh, you know, I think most of those players on that on that particular team stayed around and have been and, and are still around. So, but it was for me one to give back, give back to those that were um, uh, so uh, supportive of us. And uh, and it still feels the same way. I mean, times have changed. Obviously, rosters have changed. The game has changed. And from my position, you get recognized by how many uh, catches you make, how many you know, uh, how many uh, exciting catches you make. Uh, but at that time, it was as most true uh, sports towns. They appreciate the athlete, the individual who gives the effort day in and day out. And to me, that was important. And it just spilled over to the community where I just wanted to do more to be a part of and become a part of. Denver was growing, Colorado was growing, so it was an ideal fit for someone who really wanted to engage themselves beyond the, the game of football or beyond sports. You know, you talked about your time in Buffalo. Another quarterback you played with in your career while you were with the Bills made history. 1969, a year before the NFL merged with the AFL, James Harris started week one for the AFL Bills, becoming the first African-American quarterback to start a season opener in either league. Do you remember the atmosphere around that start and the media's coverage of that event? You know, I, to be honest with you, I really don't. I mean, I don't think it was a big deal for us. Um, uh, I mean, we didn't... You know, just thinking back on it now and, and, and trying to conjure up something, I think it was just one that I know it was probably more of a big deal amongst the players, um, you know, in terms of this happening to, in a franchise like the Buffalo Bills and something that uh, rarely happened. You had Marlon Briscoe uh, with the Broncos who, who had pretty much uh, gone that route. So for us, it was one we were very proud. Uh, the team was very proud. The African-Americans were very proud to – to see all of a sudden that that uh, that ceiling being broken, and uh, and to be a part of that. So Jim was very good. I mean, he had a very strong arm, but uh, again, the times uh, didn't necessarily dictate for uh, him to have the success that he possibly could have. 
Uh, that brings us to one of the other reasons I wanted you on our show this week, and it's because of the hot-button topic in the NFL, which is politics, football, and the anthem. If you look at social media, so many fans are incensed over the fact that football players are making political statements, and so many of them feel they should just be playing football. I posted something on Facebook as an example of a football player who went on to run, actually, for vice president, a former teammate of yours, Jack Kemp. So before we talk about Jack Kemp, you play for the Buffalo Bills from 19. 1968 to 1972, years that would be defined by the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, American astronauts being the first to walk on the moon, anti-war protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, the Kent State shootings. I know it's hard to say, but if social media or coverage of the NFL was like it is now back then, do you think some of the players might have been protesting what was going on in the country at that point? You know, I, I think there were protests. You have to look at Tommy Smith and John Carlos. At the Olympics, right. You have to look at Muhammad Ali so and uh, Lou Alcindor, Jim Brown, Kurt Flood. So there were political protests of sorts uh, uh, social, from a social activist standpoint. So it's not something new. It was just not covered. And it was made short meet up because once those acts took place, those individuals were banished, stripped, and what have you, and then the world went on as it, you know, as it normally does. So, yeah, it may have been a lot different uh, had there been that social media, but I think the importance of this particular um, uh, effort by the players was that there was unity uh, throughout the league, and not just with the players. The, the league and the owners came out very strong and very quick uh, in support of, to me, that's the difference. Those individuals in the past did not have that support and were basically thrown under the bus. Now, as far as Jack Kemp, this is what I posted. Um, I wrote, first off, he is the best rebuttal to those who say athletes should stick to sports. As his post-playing career, he served as housing secretary in the administration of President George H.W. Bush from 1989 to 93, having previously served nine terms as a congressman for Western New York's 31st District Congressional District from 1971 to 1989. He was a Republican Party's nominee for vice president in 1996 election, where he was running mate of presidential nominee Bob Dole. Kemp previously contended for the presidential nomination in 1988. He served his country in the Army Reserves from 1958 to 1962. He was a conservative. He co-founded the AFL Players Association, for which he served five terms as president. He also brought from his football career a belief in racial equality, which came from playing football with African-American teammates. Kemp said, I wasn't there with Rosa Parks or Dr. King or John Lewis, but I am here now and I am going to yell from the rooftops about what we need to do. So the question I have for you, being his teammate, if you had decided to take a knee to protest social inequality back then, do you believe that Jack Kemp would have been right by your side as well? I think so. I, I, just as just what you mentioned, he understood that uh, the divisiveness uh, uh, that, that uh, was hurled toward race, uh, toward class, uh, those that wanted to make an issue of. He understood. He was very sympathetic, empathetic, too. So I think Jack would very much have been supportive of what the players are doing right now to show their support and unity for social and racial injustice. You cited many of the civil rights movement individuals. And from what I understand, Jack was pretty much the only Republican. The Republicans connect to the African-American community 
the only connect they had to the African American community. So um, I, I, I would be, I would think and be very proud to, to say that yes, I think he would be there with us. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. Lastly, one other interesting teammate you had as a Bill was in a 22-year-old rookie named O.J. Simpson. Uh, what do you remember about your first interaction with O.J., and could you ever in your wildest dreams imagine from that rookie season and, and the seasons he had in the NFL to what O.J. has become today? Well, you know, it was really interesting. We were both uh, junior college All-Americans in California. Uh, I was a uh, junior college All-American safety, and he was obviously running back. Uh, out of uh, San Francisco City College, so I knew OJ prior to. And as a matter of fact, I, I I was given I had a scholarship in hand to Southern Cal um, uh, to play safety. Right. And uh, I made long story short, I was asked by Don Horn, my junior college uh, quarterback, to come to San Diego State just for a visit, talk to Coriel. Well, what happened was I got there, I fell in love with the school, and it was more about what Coriel and Madden said to me it was about not so much football, it was having fun, but getting an education, which was the thing that was driving me uh, to, to the lens that I went to in terms of uh, sports. So I knew O.J. in California. We, we were supposed to be roommates, uh, I believe. Mike Garrett and Craig Furtick uh, recruited us both. So I had a sense of O.J. prior to, but I think when it got to that level of, of pros, it was just something special because, like Joe Namath, he did change the game of football in many ways, uh, in the more exciting. He was the he was that day's Jim Brown, uh, but it just seemed like he had just a lot more excitement. I mean, Jim used to run into and over people, and OJ just had a knack of running around and away from them. But I remember when he first came into camp, he held out for a while. And we were at Niagara University, and uh, everybody was in, waiting and anticipating uh, uh, OJ coming in, and he pulled up in his limousine and. Tell you what, it was uh, never the same after that. <laughs> Haven, thank you so much for your time tonight, your views on some fairly important topics. We really appreciate it. You're welcome, guys. Thank you so much. And uh, I know things are going to get better. The world is going to get better, but we, we have to do it together. Totally agree with you. Thanks so much. Take care now. Haven Moses, Denver Broncos Ring of Fame member.